it's unprecedented, the level of political volatility. Now, think about if you're a company or you're an investor, and one year your corporate tax rate is going down, and two or four years later it's going up. Or you're a healthcare company, and one year you're doing Obamacare, and then two or four years later you're taking it away. So the political volatility is increasing the policy uncertainty for companies, which is why more and more S&P 500 companies are saying that there's this risk from Washington. And that's what we're trying to capture as part of our analysis here for investors. Welcome to the latest installment of Currently, the podcast that brings you the week's current events in finance, business, and technology with insight from the experts. Today, Ryan Pallotta is talking with Daniel Clifton, partner and head of strategy research at Strategus Research Partners. With the midterms right around the corner, Daniel explains how he helps institutional investors make decisions as the political landscape shifts and policies change. He describes a model that Strategus employs for predicting the outcome of presidential elections and explains why this model has gotten just about every election right, including 2016. Daniel then talks about why he thinks the current environment is reminiscent of 1968, then describes indicators that will give us a better understanding of the depth and severity of the seemingly inevitable recession. Daniel leaves us with a slew of predictions concerning the midterms, the outcome of the 2024 presidential election, Jerome Powell continuing to chair the Fed, and a possible October surprise from Vladimir Putin. Our podcast with Daniel Clifton reminds us that knowledge is power, particularly when it comes to investing. You'll get that same feeling each time you open the Prometheus app. At Prometheus, you can learn directly from top financial professionals and access the funds they manage more easily than ever before. Go to our website, prometheusalts.com, and get started today. And now, enjoy our talk with Daniel Clifton. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm really excited about this conversation because it combines something that I'm very passionate and interested in, which is how politics and policy could greatly affect the way we invest, especially for institutional investors. So before, we, one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about was how you work with institutional investors to guide them on their decision making when it comes to policy and political uh, landscapes changing, especially as we head into the midterms right now? Yeah. So let's just kind of take a bigger picture view of kind of the landscape over the last 20 years. Uh, what's happened probably since the tech bubble burst, but really since the global financial crisis in 2008, is that Washington has had a much greater impact over the investment landscape. How do we know this? Well, we can look at company 10Ks, Companies are filing and companies are increasingly citing the government as their top risk. So in 2008, about 26% of S&P 500 companies said the government was their top risk. Uh, most of those were defense and healthcare companies that had a lot of government business. Today, that number is 52%. So you've had a doubling of the number of S&P 500 companies saying the government is their top risk. And that means that what's happening in Washington is becoming increasingly more important to companies, companies' profits, and it's a place that investors are going to have to have some sort of overlay uh, in addition to their traditional bottom-up analysis. Uh, I would argue that there are some academic studies that are finding that uh, an increasing portion of company profits are coming from Washington as well. And we think that that's an underrepresented area where you can start to find an earnings benefit. So what we found is that company lobbying is statistically significant in relative performance of stocks. Uh, and then we apply that to different thematic areas. And so what we're doing is we're evaluating what's going on in Congress. Let's just say we're doing tax reform. We're going to lower corporate tax rates. We're trying to figure out what that tax bill looks like. We're trying to figure out what that earnings impact is going to be, and we're trying to define what the investment implications are. So policy and then investment implications. Obviously, elections are a big part of that because if you have a change in power, it's going to change what policies mm -hmm. are going to be enacted. And we're on the forefront of a midterm election. And so what we're doing is we're constantly evaluating what the potential election outcomes could be what the different policy implications of those election outcomes are going to be, 
and then what the likely investment implications of those policy decisions will ultimately result for investors. And we're trying to generate alpha for our clients or at least manage the risk in other circumstances. Yeah, and has there been a time that you can remember that's been as uncertain as we're seeing today with so many macro risks happening that are your institutional clients more concerned than you can remember in recent memory? Absolutely. And, you know, if you think about it, most investors today started their careers in the mid 90s. So Mm -hmm. after the Berlin Wall went down, after geopolitical risk went away in a very low inflation, low interest rate environment. Yes. Did we have macro shocks during that time? We had 9-11. We had the tech bubble burst. We had the global financial crisis. We had a pandemic. But they all happened in a low interest rate, low inflation environment. Today, we're going back to what I call the pre-Berlin Wall scenario when the Berlin Wall was up, a pre-1990 view, where you now have to get inflation out of the system for the first time in 40 years. We haven't had to do that since 1982. We now have rising interest costs on the debt servicing, which means that fiscal policy is much more restricted. And you now have geopolitical risk because you're being challenged by both China and Russia here in the United States. And so you're going to have greater volatility. You're likely going to have higher inflation, slightly higher interest rates, lower PEs on stocks. And I generally think that that benefits value over growth unlike the old models. So for most investors, they've never seen this type of situation before. It creates uncertainty. And there are definitely different playbooks that we're watching to help guide our investors through this uncertain environment. Now, I will tell you this, that we found that higher levels of uncertainty have actually been pretty good for stocks, policy uncertainty. There's these great researchers at Stanford and University of Chicago who measure policy uncertainty. And Mm -hmm. when their index gets over 150 or over 200, definitely the forward looking returns are actually really incredible. So, you know, investors are going to view that uncertainty and look for opportunities in that and not just be scared by that uncertainty. We're trying to help them get to that position. Well, tell me what a day in your life is like. How do you exactly help them get to that position? You do. You mentioned that you do do a lot of traveling. You're in D.C. uh, where you're kind of ears to the ground hearing what's going on in the world of politics. How do you guide your investors, especially the institutional ones, um, you know, to make the right decisions, to take advantage of market volatility like we're seeing? Yeah, so great question. So when I'm not traveling and I'm in D.C., I get in pretty early. I try and get in about 4, 4.30. We write a client note. Our client notes are very heavy on charts and data. We try and graph mm-hmm. everything in public policy, uh, and we try and get that note out. Uh, I talk to a number of my a uh, number of my clients early in the morning just on the big events that are happening. I'll give you an example of what we were talking about today. New York Times article yesterday uh, that hit late in the afternoon about the U.S. restricting semiconductors to China. Very similar to our Cold War 2.0 thesis. For the first time, again, in, in really 30 or 40 years, the U.S. is telling companies you can't sell into your market. You're restricting it. It's no longer yeah. about economic efficiency. It's about supply chain resiliency and, and national security. Um, and then from there, we're really trying to look at what's going on in the election. We had some big events happening in the Georgia Senate race last night, which is probably going to change the odds. So we're working on a multitude of issues. But you know, it can range from anything of trying to understand how the solar incentives are going to be implemented as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is something that we were working on this morning, to the Georgia election to the U.S. semiconductor policy. And I think that's what makes this job so incredible, is that the range of issues we're working on uh, span multiple multiple different industries, uh, have macro and sector and company-specific implications, and can also be upended by the elections. What we're trying to do at the end of the day, though, is not really comment on politics and policy. What we think separates us is that we're trying to get to the exact investment implications of what's going to go on. Mm -hmm. And so in our note today, we basically built a basket of stocks that said, here's what happens if we have an aggressive post-election, we call it lame duck session of Congress. What companies are going to benefit from the child credit or increased defense spending or Mm -hmm. uh, uh, generalized uh, system of tariffs being renewed, you know, and really kind of dig deeper in and get below the surface of that. 
And, uh, and that's what we're trying to do to guide our, our investors, help them create alpha, manage the risk of the uncertainty. But if we're just positing on politics, that makes us no better than the pundits that you see on TV <laughs> at night. Really they're not very good anyways. It. Yeah, they're terrible anyways. So they are. Yeah. I love that you guys are actually trying to find, help people create a thesis out of some of these policies that are being created, which you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, which I think, you know, it's obviously we've talked a lot about that yep. on this show and how it's, it's kind of interestingly named the Inflation Reduction Act when mostly it's going to go to benefit kind of climate policy. How are you kind of looking at that and what are there companies that you're looking at or sectors that you look at that would benefit from that? Yep. So first, again, we don't, you know, I can give you my opinion, but my opinion really doesn't matter. What we like to do is take stuff like the betting odds of whether the Inflation Reduction Act is going to pass. And we watch those betting odds and we try and find relationships with those betting odds. So what Mm -hmm. we found during that debate is that the U.S. yield curve, the 210 yield curve, was almost perfectly correlated to the odds of the Inflation Reduction Act passing. The two-year yield was almost perfectly correlated. So what does that mean? Well, the odds of the Inflation Reduction Act are going up, and two-year yields are going up, and the yield curve is flattening and ultimately inverted. What the market was saying was, this is not the Inflation Reduction Act, this is the Inflation Increase Act, because (laughs) they're saying that this is going to make the Fed's job harder. The Fed is going to have to raise rates and uh, more than is expected. Again, it's a very quantitative, fact-proven way that we're looking at that. Now, there were four parts to the Inflation Reduction Act. There was an increase or uh, uh, an extension of existing ACA subsidies. Those are healthcare subsidies for people to purchase health insurance. There was drug price controls on prescription drugs put into effect. There was a 15% minimum tax on corporate profits. And then there was the climate change policy that you put in. Now, what's interesting is that if you go to your brokerage account and buy a publicly traded ETF for clean energy, chances are that that clean energy ETF did not represent the best stocks that are going to be purchased, uh, that are going to benefit from the Biden climate change policy. And by the way, this was $300 billion of wind and solar and uh, hydrogen and nuclear uh, energy storage. It was all in there. Okay. And so what we found is that those ETFs were generally inefficient. So we went in and we built a basket of the stocks that we thought would benefit from that Biden climate change policy. And man, I mean, it worked perfect. This, this, that basket was up like 29% oh, in wow. the three weeks when that Inflation Reduction Act was passing. So what I'm trying to tell you is that there's a macro consequence that we figured out, but then we get down to the stock yeah. level. Okay, you, you're into the climate change part. Here's a basket. You're into the drug pricing part. Here's a basket. Those drug, those pharma and biotech stocks that were most levered went down 15% relative to the S&P 500 in three weeks. And then you you take it one step further, you have the tax increases. And there's about 80 companies that are going to get hit by that minimum tax. Some of them, I I would say there's 20 really get hit by it. We have to figure out what those companies are so that our clients know that there is some risk on that front as well. So we're always looking for opportunities and risks, macro and at the stock and sector specific level. That's super interesting. I love that you're able to help your clients decide kind of what sectors might benefit from, you know, policy changes that happen almost daily or weekly. You guys really keep, you know, a sense of what's going on. How are you looking at what some are going to be calling like the red wave where we see, you know, the Republicans really kind of cleaning up in the midterms? But what we're seeing also that I'm interested in is Biden's approval ratings seem to be getting a little bit better. Um, you know, he was probably like the least popular president president ever not too long ago. And now he's kind of creeping back up. What do you think is causing that? And do you think that that's going to change anything regarding this like so-called red wave? Awesome question. So let me, let me take your second question first and we'll go back to the Perfect. to the kind of investment implication. Right. So what we try and do with elections is we try and have a framework mm-hmm. and we say, what what's the framework? Well, every president has a first midterm election. And what has happened in those midterm elections? On average, a sitting president loses about 29 House seats in that first midterm election. The Republicans only need five seats to win. 
And that's, that's on average, historically, we've always seen a president lose about that many seats. Yep. So on average, that's how much they lose. What happens is the president gets elected, there's high hopes, and then we start not liking the president yeah. and we vote in Same the other thing party, right? Obama as well, yeah. And, and so, yeah, and it happens. And what we found is that the president's approval rating is the most correlated to the number of lost House seats. So a president at 43% where Biden is today should lose about 40 House seats. What makes this election cycle so incredible is that the voters have basically decoupled a bit from Biden. Maybe they didn't think he's not going to run for re-election. Mm-hmm. There's other factors such as Trump. But just think about this. Like there's only two presidents in a hundred years who's ever gained seats in their first midterm election. And that was FDR during the Great Depression and George yeah. W. Bush after 9-11. So like really big events. And then what happened was that the Republicans were winning. They were way, the, this red wave that you referenced winning in Virginia, almost winning in the New Jersey governor's race, winning in Texas border districts that haven't voted Republican ever in history. And that all began to change. And it all began to change right around the beginning of July. The first thing that happened is that gasoline prices went from $5 a gallon to $4 a gallon. Once that happened, consumer confidence began to bounce higher. Biden's approval rating started to bounce higher. And the congressional ballot preference poll started to get a little bit more momentum for the Democrats. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is that you had a Supreme Court ruling on Roe versus Wade. And like we have just never seen in our lifetime a mobilization of women voters like we've seen since June 23rd, where women are out-registering men 15 to 20% in nearly every single state. It's amazing. And As most of those women, since July, you said, or it, from the vote. Yeah, so it started on June 23rd, which is when you had that Supreme Court ruling on Roe mm. versus Wade. And so the question is, are they voting? Because nobody believes the polls. And so we had five special elections in August. Those are for congressional seats where the member retired or passed away. Mm. And the Democrats really performed well in those five special elections, which tells us that the lower gasoline prices, the Roe versus Wade ruling, have started to energize the Democrats and created a more neutral political environment uh, Mm -hmm. between the two parties. Okay, so that being said, what has happened over the last couple of weeks is that you're beginning to see Republicans gain some momentum here. Where that Republican momentum is coming from, we're talking less about abortion, more about crime. We're talking about higher gasoline prices over the last two weeks, and Donald Trump is just not on the front pages. Okay, so all of that has worked to benefit the Republicans. And why I'm walking you through all this, it's not for political punditry, but we have a Republican portfolio and we have a Democratic portfolio. And we we basically run their performance relative to each other as a diagnostic tool to see how the market is pricing in the election. And, you know, for most of the year, the Republicans had a 70, 80 percent chance in our portfolios of sweeping. And that number fell all the way down to about 30% in our portfolios uh, by the time we got to the end of the summer. I see you have a Yankee hat on. You know, we, we used to joke, like, who's having the bigger crash in the month of August, the Yankees or the Republicans? Because they were both crashing at the same time. Right? <laughs> yeah, and so and, 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 and it, you can literally take Biden's approval rating and put it on the Yankees' ALE lead, and it's, like, inversely Maybe. perfect. So now what's happening here is that our Republican portfolio – has really started to take off over the last two weeks and really began to start to price in a Republican sweep because what we're seeing is that the issue matrix is changing. And of course, this could be temporary, but the issue matrix is changing. Also, you just had an election in Brazil. You had a lot of hidden voters. And I think the market is saying, hey, there's probably a lot of hidden Republican voters like you saw in 2016 as well. And so what's happening here is the market is pricing this in And then you have this Herschel Walker event that happened last night, and Georgia is key to the Republican sweeping. So now the Republicans are going to have to find another state if they are going to sweep. I have been fascinated today that you haven't seen a bigger reaction in either the stocks or the betting odds on a Republican sweep, even though the race is probably looking more Democratic today than it was uh, this time 24 hours ago. 
What are your what's your take on what's happening in Georgia and with Herschel Walker? We saw yesterday there was a news article that came out that said he had actually funded an abortion for yep. a woman that he had an affair with. And, you know, obviously with Roe reverse Wade and he's running on a platform of pro-life. Um yep. going into this election in Georgia, he seemed to you know, be up a lot and was going to win that. How is that going to potentially affect your investment theses? Yeah. So again, this is bigger than the Georgia special election because it's going to impact the Senate races, the, the entire control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, Republicans are likely going to win Nevada. They're probably going to lose Pennsylvania. That kind of nets itself out, keeps the Senate 50-50. But then, you know, Georgia was going to be that one seat pickup mm-hmm. for the Republicans. And so this has national consequences. I think it's less about the previous position on fi- fi- uh, having an abort, having a girlfriend with an abortion, but it's his son basically saying and accusing him of domestic violence, which mm-hmm. I think is going to be kind of the real aftershock of what happened last night and where the challenge comes for for uh, Herschel Walker. Right. So now let's just think about it. The, the Republican sweep. Joe Biden's still president. He can still veto, but if the Republican sweep. We're going to get significant energy permitting reform that's going to allow natural gas pipelines to be cited a little bit better. There was some talk about doing that right before the election, failed to go through, but that mm-hmm. can get the Mountain Valley, Mountain Valley pipeline through almost immediately because it's all ready to go. And we know which we know which companies are going to benefit from the Mountain Valley pipeline, right? So that's one. We also think the Republicans are going to focus on the southern border and immigration enforcement or drones or security, or prisons, right? So there's significant investment. You could piece together investment implications mm-hmm. from that. And a Republican sweep means that you don't get any tax increases. Okay? Now, if you're going to get a Democratic sweep, you have a much easier playbook to think about the investment implications. And that becomes even clearer if the Democrats pick up a one or two additional seats than they have right now, because then they don't have to worry about Senator Manchin or Cinema blocking their tax and spending. And so the Democrats are clear that they want to do a child tax credit. They're clear that they want to expand Medicaid and they want to do clean energy funding that's called refundable that allows that clean energy to be deployed quickly. So we know exactly how to invest in that. We have a we have a child tax credit basket. It's amazing. The relative performance of that basket correlates almost perfectly to the odds of a Democratic sweep. We know that Medicaid HMOs and hospitals benefit from Medicaid expansion. And we know exactly what clean energy companies are going to benefit from those refundable tax credits. And they're all moving almost in line with the Democratic odds. I would say Democratic sweep odds are 20 percent or so. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to introduce that level of spending, then you are also going to need tax increases, higher corporate, higher multinational and higher surtax on individuals. So that's sort of kind of the tail risk. Does the market read that spending as inflationary? Is there now tax increases that are coming with it? It's a low probability, but the playbook is clearest in a Democratic sweep relative to the other two scenarios. So when we have a, a hedge fund on our platform called Marathon, and it's absolutely yeah. been killing it based on their performance in commodities. So would you know energy companies and investments perform better than under a red wave sweep, a Republican sweep like you're suggesting because of what they can do to energy sectors? It depends on what type of energy, uh, you know, there's very different between energy pipelines and integrated companies. And I'll just give you this example. In 2020, in our Biden portfolio, we had ExxonMobil in there. And people thought we were crazy. But our <laughs> view was very simple. And that was that the fossil fuel infrastructure is going to get shut down. And when the fossil fuel infrastructure gets shut down, that's going to put another bid in higher oil prices. And Exxon and Chevron and Oxy should benefit from that. And we get that right, right? Now, we've been benefited by some more global trends that have enhanced that effect. But that was our view then. And so what did we do this year as an encore? We put Saudi Aramco in our Democratic portfolio. Because think about this. If the Democrats win this election, Mm -hmm. they are going to win with a $4 gallon gas. And they're going to say, we don't need to invest in fossil fuels. We can just double down on clean energy. And that, to me, is a very important takeaway from a Democratic sweep. And that's going to put a bid in fossil fuels. Now, if the Republicans win, 
There are different types of fossil fuel companies that could benefit, such as liquefied natural gas exports, such as pipeline distributor companies. ConocoPhillips will likely get their Alaska project passed or approved. So, you know, that's the way we think about it. We're trying to find on an individual basis where those beneficiaries are going to come on the energy front. And, you know, just to show you how crazy this election cycle is, is that, you know, we tend to think that defense spending is going to go up no matter who wins. Uh, Democrats want to put money in Ukraine to help Zelensky fight off Putin. Uh, but if the Republicans win, you're probably going to get more defense spending. Right. So, you know, it's a very it's, it's it's a very it's not as clear cut as those traditional cycles with energy and defense. But there's always ways to play it regardless of who wins. How do you look at elections that you know are not Senate races, but more like governor races where we mm-hmm. see Beto, Beto O'Rourke uh, running yeah. for governor of Texas? Uh, he seems to be doing a lot better than people would ever anticipate, especially in a place like Texas. What's your read on something like that? Yeah, so we watch the governor's races. Uh, there's a lot of interesting ones. I keep an eye on Oregon right now. Oregon's a pretty Democratic area. They have a third-party candidate taking away votes from the Democrats. Republicans may win that. Beto's five to seven points down in Texas. He's keeping it close. Uh, he was helped by Harry Styles at his <laughs> Harry Styles concert last night, holding up a Beto for Texas. Huge fan of Harry Styles. Huge fan of Styles. If he got a bunch of 17-year-old girls uh, voting for him, then probably. I think that's what the goal was, right, mm-hmm. of trying to get, you know, the younger vote out there. But, you know, Beto's going to get his, he's going to get his, um, you know, celebrity endorsements and try and kind of mobilize younger voters as you go into the election. But my sense is that, that Governor Abbott's going to win. Uh, mm-hmm. My sense is that the Florida governor's race is closer than what you would expect for DeSantis and the way he was leading. And uh, but Governor DeSantis will win. And then if you look at New York, where you have a Democratic governor, we think that the New York race is only a six point difference between the Democrat and Republican. So we still think the Democrats going to win. There's just this general feeling of anti-incumbency out there that are keeping races that should never be close, somewhat closer than what they normally would be. And we think that that's being driven by higher inflation Mm -hmm. and just greater anxiety in the economy overall. That's really started once we had COVID. How do you think that greater anxiety in the economy overall, you know, most voters cite inflation as one of their biggest concerns. How do you think that's going to weigh into when we get closer to the actual presidential election? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what we've found is that the economy is not really a big issue in midterm elections. People are voting on the mood of the country and the individual, and sometimes it is. But let's think about FDR and George W. Bush. They won seats and the economy was pretty bad during those mm-hmm. times, right? So there's there's been like this inverse relationship. But this year that's been different because inflation is the number one issue. The number two issue is crime. And that, again, that benefits the Republicans. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. why you're seeing the Republicans get a little bit more momentum. But in 2024, the presidential election, the economy remains the most dominant issue. We have a pretty superior model for presidential elections that's gotten just about every election right really? in 2016. And we use no. four variables. We use the president's approval rating. We use personal income data, real after-tax, after-inflation income. We use the S&P 500, and we use the value of the dollar. And it literally can get you within decimal points of what that election is going to be. We made a subjective adjustment in 2020 during the election because we knew that COVID was this kind of uh, event that was happening that would be outside that normal model. And you know, if you made a 2% adjustment for COVID, it got down to the number almost perfectly. So um, the economy is what matters. And so that's why President Biden wants to get a child tax credit immediately after the midterm election. Mm-hmm. He's trying to deliver cash to consumers. It's exactly what President Obama did when he got wiped out in his first midterm election is he got a payroll tax cut. And that's what our model is looking for. After tax, after inflation income that boosted through, through, you know, you're giving out cash, but it doesn't help the Fed get inflation out of the system. No. And inflation is a major driver. So in our model right now, if the election was today for president, not the midterms, but for president, 
Joe Biden would get about 34, 35% of the vote. Jimmy Carter, you know, got 46, 47%. George Walker Bush, right? So we anticipate it's going to get better for the president if he runs for re-election. But where we are now today in a high inflation environment, it's just a killer for our presidential model. And that's why he has low approval ratings. Do you predict anybody specifically running against him on the other side? Or do you think he's going to even run again and they'll replace him with another Democrat, like they're talking about Gavin Newsom or um, his yeah. vice president, Camilla Harris? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I do, when I'm on the road, I meet with clients all day and I talk about all the important things that we're talking about. And then they're like, so do you think Trump and Biden are going to run? Like, this is what people are focused on, right? Yeah, that's what people cool. are interested in. It's going to be DeSantis, and- Biden, Newsom. Oh, the cast of characters are amazing, right? This is yeah. better than any type of entertainment you have. So, you know, I, I take a step back and I say to myself, you know, does Biden run, does Trump run? There's a codependency that they have on each other right now. And that codependency is that if Trump is running, Biden's going to make the case to the Democrats, we can't have a protracted primary with 20 candidates. I need to be the guy and only I can beat Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is arguing, if Biden's going to be the person in the race, then I should be able to rematch him from 2020. So they almost need each other. And I think if one gets out, the other one's got to get out, which is fascinating. Yeah. Okay. But there are very ambitious politicians on both sides looking at the post-Trump Biden world. And that's going to be Gavin Newsom, who's made it clear if Biden doesn't run, he will challenge a sitting vice president of his own party which is Vice President Harris. Mm-hmm. And you have Pete Buttigieg and you have Amy Klobuchar and you have Gina Raimondo and you have Elizabeth Warren. They all want to run for president, right? So big cast of characters there. And then on the Republican side, I think it's very clear that Governor DeSantis is probably going to challenge Trump if that is what, uh, if Trump decides to run. And DeSantis is setting up an argument that Trump, you had your chance. You listen to Dr. Fauci. You shut down the economy. I didn't do that in Florida. I kept the schools open. I kept the economy open. Florida's booming, and it's time for new leadership. That's going to be a fascinating primary if you see something like that, right? But the more people that would get in that race, the harder it is to replace Trump because you dilute the anti-Trump vote in that respect. So Trump wants as many candidates in the primary, and DeSantis wants as few. I would keep an eye on Governor Yunkin of Virginia. I think he's really clearly in a position to be the alternative in a case like that. So I expect spirited primaries in both parties. Let me just be controversial here for a minute. Let's just say Biden and Trump are the folks who are running for president. I would anticipate that there would be a third party challenge. It would likely be a unity ticket with one Republican and one Democrat trying to run from the middle And that's not something that you would normally see. But in these unprecedented political times, it is definitely something that could happen. Probably Senator Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Murkowski from Alaska. But again, I think it works much better in theory than in practice. But it can only be executed if it is a Trump versus Biden race. If any of the other people are going to be the nominees, I don't think that model works. That sounds like a storyline from an Aaron Sorkin movie or The West Wing. I think that actually happened in The West Wing. But I love that. And um, have you have you seen a time where it's been so unprecedented with so much uncertainty? I don't think there's been a time where we weren't sure that our sitting president was going to run again or not. Correct. You know, maybe 19, again, everything looks like 1968 to me. If you think about where we've been over the last two years, we had what I call four major policy shocks. We had a pandemic, a recession, mass protest, and a change in president. Each one of those significantly changes public policy by themselves. But it is very rare in American history for all four of those events to happen at one time. The only other time it happened was in 1968, 1969. Lyndon Johnson decided, I'm not going to run for president. I'm not going to run for reelection in 1968. But as soon as we got out of that 1968, 1969 time period, what happened? We had a one and a half percent contraction of GDP. We had high inflation. We had the war in Vietnam. We had an energy embargo. 
We got rid of the Bretton Woods financial system. I mean, like these are major changes that have happened. Where are we today? We had an identical contraction of GDP in the first half of this year. We have high inflation. We have the Ukraine war. We got an energy embargo going on in Europe. And we just have all this political uncertainty. And if you just take today's S&P 500 and you overlay it, it looks a lot like the 1970 stock market. So tough year for equities, down 20%. Same thing happened in 1970. That's the only comparable period that I could find that what we're going through. And that's why it's important you get inflation right, because the Fed kept stopping Oh, we tightened too much, mm-hmm. and then inflation reaccelerated, and then inflation reaccelerated. And the risk there is that you have negative real returns from 1968 to 1978. We do not want 10 years of negative real returns on the S&P 500. So you want to get inflation right the first time and put it to bed. And that's what the Fed is trying to say is we're not we're, we're going to risk a recession because we want to get inflation defeated the first time around. Well, there's been a lot of talk on how bad of a recession it actually will be. I think it's inevitable that we'll probably enter into one if we aren't already in a recession. Are there signals that you're seeing in the policy and in politics moving forward that might signal how deep of a recession this is going to be and how long this might go on for? It's a great question, right? So it feels like the Fed is going to break something uh, because they just continue to tighten here. So let me let me just take a step back. I'll give you a really cool statistic. The S&P 500 has not declined in the 12 months following a midterm election since at least 1942. We have like 80 years of data. And so every midterm election I come in, I'm like, oh, the S&P, we have these big sell-offs in midterm election years, you know, and then we rally out. Mm -hmm. And I've just been a little bit more reserved on it based on the question that you're asking. One of the reasons why that has worked so well is that we've never had a recession in the third year of a president's term ever in recorded history in the United States. Is that amazing? Wow. Okay, so you get a recession in year one, you get a recession in year four. We had one in year two around the Gulf War because of high oil prices. But in year three, presidents usually get wiped out in their midterm election. They begin to worry about their own reelection, and then they try and do more fiscal policy to negate that. And the equity market has rallied. The equity market says, That guy's never going to let a recession happen ahead of his election. We're going to get better fiscal and monetary policy. And the reason why we've just been less reserved on that this time around is because the Fed is handcuffed. Fiscal is handcuffed. It's much harder to respond to a slowdown. And so as you start to think about this recession, it's likely that we're going to have a recession sometime next year. And what the Fed is trying to do is be able to get inflation out of the system without systemic risk. So what they're targeting is that we have 11 million job openings. They want to get that number down. And today's data showed that they're getting it down. They're getting it down real fast. It becomes a lot more hurtful of a recession if those job openings are coming down and existing jobs are getting crushed at the same time. And that's going to determine the severity of that. And whether we're going to do some sort of fiscal policy after the election will determine the severity of that. So it's waiting on the election results to kind of determine how far we're going to go down that road. Well, we're seeing a really strong U.S. dollar, regardless because of some of these yep. policies that we're seeing. What do you think about the U.N. asking the United States to like, slow down on interest rates rises uh, and their request there? What did, what did that even mean? Can you break that down for some of the listeners that might not understand why they may have even asked that? And what's pushing our dollar to become so much stronger right now? Yeah, the IMF. Uh, as well uh, today oh, really? uh, came wow. out, right? So, so you have broad pressure building on the Fed from international organizations like the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund. Australia this morning basically stopped tightening, which was, again, a surprise. And it shows you that there's now central bank pressure building on the Fed to slow down interest rates, right? Because you have this trade-off. And that trade-off is do I keep tightening and get inflation out of the system? Well, everything we've done all year has been relatively easy. Now you're starting to see the stress build into the system. And there's deep concern that the Fed is tightening too much. And because the dollar is so strong, it's telling you the Fed is doing its job. And the U.S. is, by the <laughs> way, just the best, best place to be, right? So if you believe that the Fed has done its work, 
You can look at market-based indicators. The dollar is at its current level. That's sopping up excess liquidity. You look at oil, copper, other commodities. They've all come down considerably. You look at the five-year tips and saying that we're going to have two and a half year, two and a half percent inflation over the next five years. People are like, look, Fed, you've done your job. And that's what I think those international organizations are responding to, because they know if the Fed keeps going, there's going to be further economic damage. The Fed understands this because they don't want to make the same mistakes as the 70s. That's why they keep pushing ahead and saying, look, we're willing to risk a recession to get inflation out of the system. We know it's going to be painful. That's what Volcker did. And that's what the Fed may have to do. In the last couple of days, you're starting to see the market begin to price in the idea that maybe the Fed is coming close to the end here. The dollar has started to roll over here a bit. Uh, stocks have been up. Uh, that's probably you know some signs that they're getting a little bit weak in the knees here uh, as you're starting to see some of the economic toll build. How much can we learn about what happened in the 1970s and what Paul Volcker was able to do? Uh, you know, he quite substantially raised interest rates much higher than we're, we're raising today uh, to kind of break the back of inflation. What, what are some of your learnings about what happened in the 70s yep. and what happened after that? And I think it took some time after for people to even realize how successful he was. That's correct, right? So, um, and by the way, people didn't realize the 82 bottom in stocks until 85. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I say that like half jokingly, but look, this is a guy who raised the Fed funds rate by 1% on a Saturday with no <laughs> press conference or no press. It's a totally just casually different did it. <laughs> just right? It's just like, we're going. And, you know, you got an issue, let me know. So the, the key here is, though, that we had to have two recessions. The first recession slowed economic activity, but didn't result in major drop losses. And then we kind of came out of that. And then we had to have a second recession. That's where the job losses accrued to be able to bring the inflation out of the system. It mm -hmm. took us 12 years or so to get the backbone to be able to do that. Remember, like yeah. a year ago, the Fed chairman was doing press conferences saying he's going to keep rates at zero until the unemployment rate goes to three and a half percent. Right now you're asking him to raise interest rates. But again, another key lesson was the Fed had to raise rates above the rate of inflation to get it out of the system. Inflation today is eight. Are we ready to go to eight on the Fed funds rate? Now, fortunately, we're probably not going to have to go to eight. The Fed is trying to get to four, four and a half percent before they're going to be comfortable thinking that they're going to get inflation out of the system. And third, which I think is important, is that inflation is lagging, right? So that's, this is the big fight, mm -hmm. is that you've already seen goods inflation come down. Look at that Nike earnings call that happened last week. They're flooding with inventory, okay? Yeah. So eventually that's going to help get inflation down. But now we're in services. It's about wages and it's about rents. And rent's going to be the last one to go. But, you know, we just had a big rail strike, very large increase in pay. California just approved $22 uh, an hour for uh, fast food workers. So there's still some of that in the system. It's going to take some time for that to ring itself out. But ultimately, uh, you know, as long as the money growth supply is slowing and it's flat, um, that should eventually get inflation down. And so I do, do think that inflation is going to be meaningfully lower in one year from now based on what the Fed is doing. Are there any, you know, macro or political, you know, forecasting that you're seeing that shows you when we're going to potentially hit a bottom or is it something that we're not going to know until years after? You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, in, in, you know, midterm elections, it's usually the first week of October. So I'm looking mm -hmm. at what's going on this week going, oh my God, it's happening all over again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if that's a real bottom uh, because I'm just the policy analyst. Uh, inflation is somewhat structural. So we're keeping a close eye on that. But, uh, you know, you really do have to start to see inflation coming down in a meaningful way before you can bottom. That's a big lesson from the 70s. And usually once CPI got to about 6%, you would see the equity market rally and rally in a very meaningful yeah. way. Um, and, uh, and you know, so we still got a little bit of time to go here before we're going to get to 6%. Maybe the market's smart enough to be able to look through it. We have different technology, different analytical tools today that we didn't have in the 70s. 
Um, but 6% had always been the kind of key the last time we had this inflation. Before I let you go, I'd, have you seen a time in history where you've seen us be so divided, but to a point where we're starting to push people who have been traditionally one way or another, you know, like I have a lot of friends who have been lifelong liberals and Democrats now feeling more aligned with conservatives. And, but then you see, you know, them getting pushed away from that because of certain changes like Roe versus Wade, um, you know, and, you know, the extreme left are forcing people to become a little bit more centrist. Like, it seems like we're more all over the spectrum than we ever have been. What is your feeling that's causing this? And don't you think that if they, you know, especially the Republicans just stayed a little bit more centrist and didn't go after, you know, Roe versus Wade and gay marriage and things like that, they might be a little bit more successful? So first, let me say that um, we've had eight federal elections since the financial crisis. The voters of this country have removed the party in power in seven of those eight elections. We have never had this level of political volatility since the end of the Civil War, right? So this is uncharted territory, uh, but it tells you that the moderate voters are swinging each way each election, right? That's why we're going back and forth. Somebody's moving this in both directions. That's an important data point, okay? That's number one. Number two is that I think the country began to change after the Berlin Wall went down. We always had a common foreign policy enemy, a common goal of capitalism mm -hmm. and democracy versus the other models. When the Berlin Wall came down, our common enemies became somebody of the other party without that kind of common shared interest. And so mm -hmm. that's probably going to change. China's been very clear about what they're doing. They're challenging the Western world. And they think yeah. that they have a superior model. They have to be very careful because they could wind up accidentally unifying the country, even though we disagree a lot on domestic policy. And strangely, and third, we seem to be unified on what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. It seems like even the, yeah. the far right and far left both are. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. This is the thing. Like, I, I never bet against the American people, especially on international affairs like this. And, and by the way, we may say, hey, we don't want our kids to go fight in Taiwan or Ukraine or something like that. But there is broad agreement amongst the American public about these international policy changes. And there is very little difference between the Biden and Trump policy as it relates to China. Those guys are polar opposites. And when I see them doing the same thing, that tells me that's the official government policy. And no new president in 2025 is going to reverse what they're doing on these types of policy changes. So that's the third issue is one that's very important, is that gerrymandering, where the congressional lines for both parties are being driven in a way that you're more likely to lose your primary than the general election. And so there are four congressional districts in Iowa. This, all four of them will have competitive races because they keep the lines contiguous based on the counties. We don't have that in most other states. And so if you have that, then people go to the far right and the far left and that's why you're not seeing compromise. So we're probably going to need to see some sort of reform of the way we draw those congressional districts if we're going to see centrist compromise between the two parties. I'm less inclined to criticize either party for going in one direction or not. You don't really ever hear me do that because they have their coalitions. They're, they're, they know, yeah. hey, I got this right to life group and they're very important in my district where I have this progressive group and they're very important in my district and they're just building coalitions. If the lines were drawn differently and they weren't such partisan gerrymanders, they'd be less concerned about those constituencies and they would represent a broader spectrum of their voters overall. So those are really what I think are the three factors that are driving this, but they, it's unprecedented, the level of political volatility. Now think about if you're a company or you're an investor, Mm -hmm. And one year, your corporate tax rate is going down, and two or four years later, it's going up. Or you're a healthcare company, and one year, you're doing Obamacare, and then two or four years later, you're yeah, taking crazy. away. So the political volatility is increasing the policy uncertainty for companies, which is why more and more S&P 500 companies are saying that there's this risk from Washington. And that's what we're trying to capture as part of our analysis here for investors. Well, you said that volatility was often good for equities. What about political volatility? Is that going to prove to be good for investors? Yeah, listen, uh, we thought Trump had a better shot at winning. And not only that, that he would be good for stocks, which was a completely controversial idea. 
at the time. And yeah, we got a good first year. The market was like, well, he's going to give us a trade war. Nope, we're going to do tax reform first, then we'll have the trade war. So, you know, you got a whole good year out of that. Those are opportunities, right? And so we're always kind of looking through what is politics and what is real. And there is just a lot of politics that are out there. And so, you know, listen, um, Biden came in and people are like, oh, this is terrible. It's socialism. They're spending all this money. And stuff. <laughs> we knew exactly what companies were buying. We don't have time for the political arguments. We have to make investment decisions. Our clients have to make investment decisions. Our job is to find those. And the more volatility you introduce, the better it's going to be for those opportunities that we can find for them. I like that. That's interesting. I never thought about it that way. So, you, you know, he, people may complain that he's coming in and spending too much money, but there's always going to be a company that benefits from him spending too much money. Totally right. Yeah. And by, by the way, inflation feels amazing the first year, right? But the goal was to get ahead of when the market was going to rotate. The market rotated in November 2021, where it began to worry about that inflation. So if you were early on that, you missed major opportunities. But then you needed to shift. And that's where the market rotated. November 2021 was one of the most consequential months that I've ever seen in 25 years in politics. You had the Virginia, New Jersey election. You had the Fed meeting where they basically said we're getting out of asset purchases just the day after the Virginia governor's election. You passed an infrastructure bill and then you got that massive CPI reading on mm -hmm. November 10th that showed that this is not transitory. That forced Powell to remove the transitory language and it changed the entire framework by which we were investing in. And it moved us to a tighter monetary and fiscal policy outlook for 2022. I bring that up to you because November of 2022 has five major catalysts. It's earnings, as everybody knows, but you have a Biden, Xi Jinping meeting, you have yeah. the midterm elections, you have the lame duck session of Congress, and you got a Fed meeting as all this international pressure is building on the Fed to start changing its monetary policy. So to me, I think this could be a November to remember and one that can lead to a framework change for investors. It's crazy right now. We, and we saw, I think we saw Korea fire a missile over Taiwan, North Korea fire a missile over Taiwan the other day. Um, how do you keep track of this, all this stuff going on? There's, it seems like this is probably the busiest you've ever been in quite some time. Well, I have, I have the best colleagues in the business that I work with. My colleagues, Cadet, Courtney and Chris, um, they, do, they do amazing work. And uh, obviously, it's hard to track all this. But the key is that you have the potential for nukes being moved on trains in Russia, right? At mm. the same time that North Korea is lighting off rockets. What that's telling you is that there's greater geopolitical risk out there. And one of the least consensus ideas coming into this year was to own defense stocks. And they've been a great safety trade throughout this year where equities are down, most of these stocks are up uh, overall. And so that's sort of the way that we think about it. I can't figure out what you know North Korea is gonna do or whether Putin really does have nukes uh, and is willing to use them. What we could do is say, we didn't really worry about this over the last 30 years. We're now having to worry about it because the probability is no longer zero, it's higher. And yeah. what kind of reaction should we have to that? We should own defense stocks in that type of environment. That's the, that's the way that we try and handicap these events. Well, you're an incredible resource, and I can't wait to have you on more often. Before I let you go, let's uh, quickly get some predictions so I could hold you right. to them the next time oh, we talk. <laughs> I'd love to see the biggest or hear your thoughts on the biggest surprise, what you think will be the biggest surprise out of the midterms, and what you th if you think there's actually going to be a red wave or a blue wave. So our view is that the wave is gone, but the Republicans can still win the trench warfare. If it was a wave, the Republicans would win uh, all sorts of races that they shouldn't win, per se, mm -hmm. and they would win four Senate seats uh, and have a clean majority. I do think that it's possible that the Republicans can end up with a 51-49 Senate and about a 15-seat majority in the House of Representatives when this election is over. The surprise is going to happen at the governor's level, where you're going to see a number of gubernatorial incumbents uh, come under pressure. Uh, and I do think that you could see Republicans winning in some states that are controlled by Democratic governors right now. Oregon is, is definitely one of them that's on our radar screen. Um, so my, my sense here is that the momentum is with the Republicans. Where I would say that there's a level of uh, variability in that view is that if you somehow have Donald Trump reemerge in the headlines, 
mm-hmm. do think that that's going to increase Democrat enthusiasm, lower Republican enthusiasm, and then lower the chances of that. So maybe Donald Trump gets arrested for jaywalking in Palm Beach <laughs> next week. Uh, you know, that's that's really the yeah. risk to our view. What we've been thinking about is that Ukraine continues to make continued success in uh, in the on the battlefield. Uh, and are close to driving uh, Russia out even further. I mean, that is a really big accomplishment for President Biden. Although most people don't vote on foreign affairs, if you get if you get further troop withdrawals out of Ukraine uh, without the negative reaction of what Putin's going to do, um, mm-hmm. you know that's sort of a, a an October surprise, so to speak. But Putin clearly has his own version of October surprise if he wants everybody to know that he's moving his nuclear subs and trains, as we learned. Uh, this week as well. So we just got to be mindful of that uh, in that respect. What's your prediction on what happens in Georgia? Do you think that last night's article and the tweet storm by his son and TikTok star uh, Christian Walker um, affects him at all? Well, Herschel Walker denies the charges. Mm-hmm. I, I do think his son charging him with domestic abuse uh, multiple times is going to be more hurtful than the abortion charges on him. Uh, Herschel was already facing a tough, uh, tough debate. Uh, Senator Warnock is uh, very good at this and he has raised a lot of money. Uh, so that has that has uh, hurt him. So I, listen, I, it's hard for us to get to the Republicans winning the majority without Georgia. They would have to win Pennsylvania, Nevada, uh, or if they don't win Pennsylvania, they would have to win Arizona or New Hampshire, which is tough. Uh, but my sense here is that that Georgia's Georgia's probably going to see ticket splitters. The governor of Georgia is a Republican's likely to win. Warnock is likely to win. Again, we're 24 hours into this. So we could revise that view. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Republicans are saying that this is going to be a non-issue. My experience in politics is this is going to shave three to five points off Walker. It's going to make it harder for him to win on, uh, on election. Interesting. What's your prediction on the actual presidential election? Who are two contestants that we're going to see, candidates that we're going to see? So I think that Governor DeSantis or Yunkin will be the Republican nominee in 2024. And I believe that it will be either Governor Newsom or uh, 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 the Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo as the Democratic nominee. If I was to put a third on there, I'd say Senator Amy Klobuchar would be the third. You really want to get adventurous. You know, it's, uh, you know, Hillary comes back. Uh, because, oh, wow. you know, but, but I, I think that America is ready to move on. And the reason why I say that, if I was to make a prediction that I have certainty in, very likely that we will not have a president older than Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and mm-hmm. much more likely that we have somebody younger, right? I, I say that like half jokingly, but where I started to start see a push for competency amongst the American voters was following the initial Russia attack on Ukraine. You started to see American voters look at Zelensky and say, I want one of those as my presidential yeah. nominee. So I tend to think that we're going to go younger here. Historically, in American history, we vote the opposite of our existing presidents. And I think this time it's going to be an age opposite where we were old. Now we're going to be looking for young and youthful and energetic, particularly as we have a younger uh, voting population. I think people are starting to reminisce for the times of Obama where you know he was inspiring through his speeches, regardless of his policy that they... Right. They agreed with or not, but I'm surprised you didn't mention Biden being a contender at all. Do you, you really think that he's he's done for next term? You know, I, I, my dad is a similar age as Joe Biden. My dad mm-hmm. was a state trooper, uh, you know, best driver I've ever been in the car with. He's not as great of a driver today, and he's yeah. not running the world's largest economy. And so you just generally slow down with age. If you were the most healthiest person walking into the president of the United States, it would age you. Have you yeah. looked at a picture of Jay Powell over the last three years? And he's just Fed chairman, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, look at Obama. If you look at Obama over look the at Obama, eight, right? eight years. So I just yeah. think from a strain and health perspective, eventually Biden's going to not run. But he, he's been clear over the last couple of days that he's intending to run. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't, it's not like a I don't believe change. him. I just yeah, a lot can so. change, especially in the, from now until then, especially at that age. I mean, I'm 36 and I'm ready to retire. I'm, I'm feeling the, <laughs> yes. I'm feeling it in my bones. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, my exactly. health is declining rapidly. And um, for 
uh, do you think is Powell, uh, federal chairman Powell, he'll continue to be the chairman into the next election? Yeah, he's got a four year term uh, that expires. Uh, and, uh, you know, my sense is that this will be his last four year term. Uh, and uh, he better get inflation out of the system. You have one job and that's to get <laughs> keep inflation low. He's got to get it out of the system now. Uh, and, uh, you know, listen, I, I, I think whoever's president is going to be able to select the next Fed chairman. Uh, if it is a Democrat, Leo Brainer, who's vice chair, will be one. I got to tell you, Larry Summers has rehabilitated himself with being yeah. right on inflation and probably would be looking at saying, hey, I, you know, I should be the alternative if we're if we're really looking to get inflation out of the system, if it's still lingering at that time. So that's on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you see people like Kevin Warsh, who was on the FOMC. Trump considered him uh, at one time uh, as a potential uh, person, but there were, there may be others. It all depends on mm -hmm. who's going to be president. Republicans are starting to develop some non-traditional monetary policy ideas. And that means that they'll have non-traditional po monetary policy candidates. Well, I know you're super busy heading into midterms and there's so much news going on. So I really appreciate you being on our show. Daniel, I love having you on. So please come on again. Thank and you. Uh, thank you for your amazing insights. Great. Thanks for having me.